Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we discuss the most interesting and compelling seafood news of the week. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined today by Nina Unlai and Demi Corbin in our London Bureau. And today we are going to be talking about the Aquanor trade show in Trondheim, Norway, which was last month. And some of the interesting things that we noticed uh, while we were visiting. Um, and a couple other big things um, from this week. We will be talking to Demi about her story on uh, land-based salmon producer Atlantic Sapphire, as well as some of the controversy that's been going on uh, in Denmark where they have operations. Um, so, Nina, I'm going to send it over to you, and let's talk a bit about Aquanor and sort of what jumped out at you in terms of the technical and technological uh, trends that are uh, shaping uh, the aquaculture sector right now? Um, well, the first thing I noticed, so heading into Aquanor, I expected to see a lot of, a lot more companies selling processing equipment and kind of like machines in your face, that sort of thing. Um, and what I noticed was there was actually quite a lot of data-oriented and software-oriented companies, a lot, a lot of startups, a lot of, a lot of, um, People trying to do AI, machine learning, um, cloud-based data, which which I thought was really interesting because it really jumped out at you how many of these companies were trying to solve these problems. Um, and it's interesting because they're all kind of crowding into the same problems. Um, and I actually spoke to uh, Hatch CEO Carson Chrome about it, and he said that it is a space that is, is starting to get flooded. Um, and that's why accelerators like themselves have started to move more towards R&D um, because it, that's a space where there's a little more room for innovation and, and tech to grow. It seemed like so much of the focus of so many of these companies and so many of the innovations that they were launching was based around one problem, and that's sea lice. And uh, everything from companies that we've known for a long time trying to get off the ground, like Stingray that's using lasers to target sea lice, uh, companies like Aqua, who are trying to come up with new solutions for uh, using fresh water to get rid of lice. Um, I spoke with Pharmac, and they're working on a lot of projects to try to come up with different solutions for sea lice, in particular in regions like Chile, where they're actually showing some resistance. So just in walking around the floor, I would, I would just say the overwhelming uh, amount of of technology that's going into to tackling that one problem was was pretty notable. I thought it was really interesting too because it seemed like a lot of the companies, like I said, the the data space was getting pretty crowded. The data and software space was getting pretty crowded, and they all wanted to start with sea lice. And when I spoke to them, it seemed to be that this was the problem that had the biggest demand, and that also was easily tackled with say image-based solutions. So like machine learning, taking the images, counting the sea lice. It seemed like a very like practical place to start. Um, and it just kind of seemed like all the companies were taking this as their jumping jumping start. So there's like Stingray, Ecotone, Aquabyte. Those are just some of the ones that I met. There were several others. Um, and they all said that sea lice counting was the most practical application for their software. And then they would slowly move from there to other diseases, other kind of um, defects that you can find um, in working with sea lice. So that was really interesting, and it seemed almost like there was a divide between this this more automated process and the mechanical, more traditional methods of delousing salmon. 
Yeah, and just moving on to, to uh, it, it's a good segue to our Salmon Summit as well, where we brought uh, a selection of people um, to our event to discuss Norway's development licenses. And a, a big part of Norway's development licenses, which is this government-funded um, scheme or, or government-backed uh, scheme, I should say, to um, to encourage salmon companies to launch innovations. And this is where you um, you see uh, Arctic Offshore and Ocean Farm One and, and some of these other um, Aquatraz, some of these other operations that are uh, just just doing some some pretty amazing stuff. Um, they are quite often aimed at solving uh, solutions, and that's part of how they get their their financing and how projects get approved. But um, but I, I found that really interesting. We had um, a look at how the oil services sector in Norway, which is so big, it's so massive, how they're beginning to see that the aquaculture space is really – uh, really interesting for them, and it's a new frontier for for them to um, to launch their businesses in. But I, I thought that was a really fascinating conversation to, to hear from uh, Norway Royal about uh, how they had uh, how they had invested in in their project Arctic Offshore um, and the work that they did to to get that license off the ground. Um, and and yeah, it's it's uh, it's an interesting time for aquaculture and Norwegian salmon farming in particular as they try to solve these solutions. Necessity's the mother of invention in, in a lot of cases with, with uh, aquaculture. And so it's, um, yeah, it, it seems to me that all eyes are on trying to tackle sea lice. Um, and as you said too, the, the digitalization of seafood uh, and how it's processed, how it's uh, farmed, um, how it's caught, um, that's moving at a, a very quick pace after kind of kind of not moving um, at the speed it should have. Uh, so I think we're gonna we're gonna hit a whole new uh, a whole new pace of of innovation in the coming coming few years. Yeah, definitely. It seems like the industry has been talking about it for a while. I mean, like there are these trends that are still popping up that people have been talking about for a while. And so when a company starts actually moving on it or doing something truly innovative. That's that's one of the things I've been kind of asking people that I meet. It's like, how do you know when a, when a solution is truly innovative? And one of the answers I got is that it has to be disruptive. And then the industry has to take notice. Right. And, and it has to be, you know, it has to, ha to have commercialization potential as well. And that's with a lot of those startups, um, whether or not they actually have that remains to be seen. Um, but part of them getting in front of, uh, of the industry is to, to get some momentum for that. And a lot of these companies now that today are the leading drivers in fish health or feed or whatever it might be, they started off in that same spot. They started off as startups, right? So it's going to be interesting to track where those companies, uh, where those companies are in a few years. Um, so, so Nina, tell us about feces, because one of the most uh, read stories of the week, um, I don't know if it's just the, a great headline um, or if it's just a fascinating topic or a little bit of both, but you really found an interesting story there. Tell us a little bit about it and um, why you think the salmon farming and aquaculture industry is so fascinated with the idea of feeding feces to its fish. 
Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, it seems to be that in, in the space of innovation, that when someone has a really innovative, or in this case, just, just out of left field idea, it seems to gain a lot of traction. And so uh, this company, which I actually did meet at Aquanor called Hypothermic, um, they are a fermentation company that figured out a process that uses volcanic matter, and they can basically turn any kind of biomass into protein powder. And they aren't a aquaculture or, or seafood or, or um, fish feed company in particular, but they realized that it was a process that they could bring into the seafood sector and that they could use for aquaculture industries um, Yeah, who were looking for a sustainable alternative. So basically, you're taking your, your salmon feces um, and turning it into protein powder, and it turns it into 40% protein which is a which is a decent number um but the thing is of course is that it's still it's still at the end of the day feces um and not only is there possibly a barrier from the consumer side there's a lot of safety regulations that go into that um so for example one of them is that you cannot feed um a salmon the say its own material so that's true for anything apparently in in the food sector and so because it's salmon feces, even if it is a feces, it's still part of the salmon, and so you cannot feed it back to uh, you couldn't feed it back to a salmon. So then, essentially, it's feed for other types of feces. And the company is focusing right now on lumpfish um, and shrimp, but of course, that's a big dent into the companies that they could particularly cater to. Uh, so yeah, it's been it is quite interesting. Um, Especially when you look at the regulations around it, because there, you you hit a lot of interesting roadblocks um, in terms of uh, trying to find al- an alternative, uh, sustainable kind of uh, fish feed. But it is really interesting. I mean, what I like about it is it it's um, I haven't tried it, but what I like about the concept <laughs> is that um, it's just like you said, it's out of left field. It's somebody thinking very very different about the sustainability of the sector. Um, and we have all these alternative feeds from bugs to algae that really not too many years ago were kind of seen as silly ideas by the industry. And now suddenly, wow, look at what's happened with, uh, with scredding and Protex. Um, look at all the funding and financing that's going into getting these companies up and running. So I think these new... Uh, these new uh, alternative feed companies, they've caught the eye and attention of major, major feed companies like BMR, Scredding, and Cargill Aqua Nutrition. And I think it's, it's, these things will commercialize uh, quickly. This particular idea, um, it does have some, some hurdles, obviously, but um, interestingly enough, uh, back to the sea lice issue, if, for example, it could sustainably... Uh, supply feed for lumpfish, which isn't a fish that's used for eating. It's a fish that's used for delousing. So there, there could be ways to practically use, uh, use the protein out of that. And um, no, I think it'll be fascinating to see. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. We'll check in on, on how those guys are are doing in the in the coming months. The company has said they have some interest from the sector, so we're going to keep following a little bit. And they were originally a food waste um, fermentation company, not a seafood waste fermentation company. So, I mean, who knows where they'll be in the next few months. 
Demi, you've been doing some work on land-based uh, salmon farming in the past uh, couple weeks um, in particular. So I want you to tell us a little bit about the controversy surrounding the uh, Danish fisheries minister's uh, opinions on uh, net pen salmon farming or net pen farming in general in Denmark. Um, and then tell us a bit about your analysis of Atlantic Sapphire as well. So to start off with what happened, what's happening in Denmark. So basically the, the new uh, environment minister, she was recently elected this June, uh, came out and said that she wants to ban net pen uh, farming and she's encouraging and boosting land-based salmon farming on the other hand. But the controversy there is that traditional net pen farmers are saying that she is backed by a kind of, they're saying it's a political stunt because she's backed by this organization or alliance, I could say, of um, land-based technology producers. So it seems like she's, she's basically just pushing forward their goals over net pen farming goals. And the claim here is that uh, this Danish aquaculture net pen farming association is saying that you can't really ban something that's been in the country for so long and you can't like basically force us to start buying technology and move into land-based fish farming and claim that it's bad for the environment when maybe land-based farming is actually more uh, detrimental for the environment. So there's this big debate that's been going on for a while uh, in the political sphere in Denmark about this issue. And this just seems like it actually blew it up. And now, now they're, ha and the main thing as well there is that they're claiming that there wasn't any dialogue between the aquaculture industry and the minister. The minister just haphazardly came up with this decision without really consulting anyone from the industry. And that's just making a lot of controversy there. So let's talk about some of the hurdles, too, with land-based uh, salmon farming that you've been reporting on as well, because it, it dovetails nicely with this. You spoke with AXA about their, the insurance giant AXA, about their willingness to ensure uh, recirculating aquaculture systems and land-based uh, projects. Um, what, did, uh, what did they have to say? So first of all, uh, they made sure that we always know that recirculating aquaculture systems is not something new but land-based salmon farming technologies are what is new. And they are not willing to ensure research and development projects. So they put all their efforts into ensuring projects that they're sure are going to generate success through looking at the technology that's being used and how they can prove the technology and through looking at how uh, operations are managed. So all their focus is put on how those operations are being managed and whether management is on par with uh, arriving to fish farming success. So that's how they ensure a project. The challenge with that, though, is that there aren't a lot of success cases to look at. There's a lot of people that are, are looking for financing to, to get these projects up and running, but it's also not a very deep bench in terms of people that actually have the experience and have the know-how to do this. So if you look at Atlantic Sapphire that we'll talk about in just a minute, it's a very young company. The CEO, Johan Andreasen, is very young uh, to a home, uh, their CFO. All of the people on this 
team are very, very young, and they are some of the most experienced people in the sector. So it gives you a sense of when AXA and when investors are looking at where they should put their money and where, should, where they should place their bets. Oftentimes, they are going to look at management and see if management is capable. Um, and as of now, when it comes to Atlantic Sapphire, they're really banking a lot on the 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 word and the uh and the past experience of the management team without really knowing how much of these uh, really knowing how this is all going to uh develop uh in terms of when they get their final uh grow out salmon to market they've done it pilot on pilot scale in Denmark but they they are a long way away from from actually uh delivering in in Miami so that that's an interesting part about Atlantic Sapphire is they have not sold much salmon at all, and they've been able to raise a shocking amount of money. So, Demi, in your analysis, where is Atlantic Sapphire? And um, give us a sense of what analysts are saying about the valuation of the company. So, um, we recently, Interfish recently, uh, made a world's largest seafood companies, and if we look at the ranking among the most valuable stock-listed salmon companies. Um, Atlantic Sapphire is the 15th most valuable company without really having any output, any commercial output. So at the moment, their market cap stands somewhere around $800 million. So it fluctuates around that amount. And the thing is, is that um, analysts are actually, are actually recommending higher share prices. So the share price at the moment, let's say, is $10.5. The target price is $16.5. So that's about a 60% upside. So, But when investors talk about Atlantic Sapphire, and they're basically advising uh, based on the potential growth, so not the invested capital that's, that's been happen that happened so far, more about what, how much success is actually going to come from it. So they're very excited and they think that Atlantic Sapphire is going to deliver on its promises. But uh, the thing is, is that investors need to start seeing delivered plans now uh, before later because the thing is, is that Atlantic Sapphire said that they're going to have an output this year, by the end of this year. And it seems like they are on track with their plan because they did move uh, the smalls and they did say that they're going to have around 1,000 metric tons by the end of this year, but only within a short period of time. So by 2026, I think they said that they're going to have around 2031, they're going to have around 220,000 metric tons. And the problem there is that uh, they suddenly increased their goals after private placement. So their initial goals were just 90,000 metric tons. And then suddenly we heard that they're going to make 220,000. So there's, there's a lot of bullish um, sentiment around Atlantic Sapphire, but we haven't seen results yet. And so it's all based on the fact that they're one of the only um, stock-listed um, land-based farmers at the moment. And so that gives them this advantage that they're 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 gonna deliver a lot. Atlantic Sapphire's market cap is higher than multi-export, Blumar, 
Scottish Salmon Company, HB Grandy, Frosta, Sanford, Invermar. We could go on and on and on. And and investors are are really really taking a bet with Atlantic Sapphire. Whether or not it's going to pay off uh, is is of course a, a question that nobody uh, nobody knows the answer to, but. There are so many variables, and that's part of what makes the company exciting and part of what I think makes what Johan Andreasen is doing um, visionary. And when you have companies and charismatic CEOs like him or, or like um, Schelling Arroka or John Friedrichsen or whenever you have these big risk takers, the payoff is huge, and um, you know, but the, the potential – losses are huge as well but i think i think there is a there's a place in the industry for that kind of thinking and i think if anything atlantic sapphire is showing that investors do want to see innovation they will actually uh place bets on companies that are doing things that they feel are uh are going to push the industry forward but that is going to be an interesting company to watch that valuation is super high and i was interested to see as you noted demi that there are buy ratings on these that there's still it's considered that there's upside on this on this stock when there's really not a lot of proof that they are um necessarily able to deliver again they've got really good management they've got uh they've got a site they've got a a strategy drawn up that that looks uh, looks doable in in some ways in terms of getting to grow out their ambitions in terms of that output. I think quietly when you talk to people about that, um, particularly people in the broader scale aquaculture industry, they're pretty skeptical. But you have to shoot big if you're gonna um, if you're gonna deliver on. Uh, what investors uh, are expecting here, so that's going to be um, that's going to be a fun fun story to keep following. Well, we'll leave it there. Thanks, Nina. Thanks, Demi. Just a reminder: in a couple of weeks, on September nineteenth, we have our Seafood Investor Forum in London. Seats are limited there and filling up fast. You can go to intrafishevents.com if you want to join. We've got a great lineup headlined by IBM, and we've got movie Bacafrost, Leroy. Uh, land-based panel and uh, and a panel of investors that are going to talk to us about the opportunities in seafood. So uh, join us if you can. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>